Chapter 16 of At Agincourt, White Hoods of Paris. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. At Agincourt, White Hoods of Paris by G. A. Henty. Chapter 16 The Escape. Maitre Leroux came in shortly after Jules Varroy had left. He had not, until the man told him, heard of the events of the night before, and Guy had to tell him all about it before anything else was said. Oh, it was a lucky escape, Master Aylmer, if one can call luck what is due to thought and quickness. Is there anything I can do for you? Well, this black hue that I gave my hair has been of good service to me hitherto, but as it is a youth with black hair that they are now looking for, I would fain change its hue again. And what uh, dye did you use? It was bought for me at a perfumer's in the Rue Cabot. As you see, it's fading now, and the ducking last night had greatly assisted in washing it out. The shopman said that it was used by court ladies and would last for a long time, but I have already had to renew it four or five times. I would now color my hair a red or a reddish brown. If I cannot do that, I must crop it quite short. It matters nothing in this disguise whether it's altogether out of the fashion or not. What think you? Doubtless you could get dyes of any shade at the perfumers you speak of, for he supplies most of the court ladies with dyes and perfumes. And I should say that reddish-brown dye would suit you well, since that differs a good deal from your hair's original color, and still more from what it is at present. I will ask one of Le Pelletier's daughters to fetch it for you. It would be better than cutting it short, though that might not go badly with your present disguise. But should you need to adopt any other, it would look strange, since in our days there is scarce anyone but wears his hair down to his shoulders. In the meantime, I would have you wash your hair several times with a lay of potash, but not too strong, or it will damage it. I warrant me that that will take out the dye altogether, but be sure that you wash it well in pure water afterwards, so as to get rid of the potash, for that might greatly affect the new dye. I'll send a boy up with some potash to you at once, so that you may be ready to apply the dye as soon as you get it. Late in the afternoon, Guy sallied out in the disguise in which he had arrived. His hair was a tawny brown. He left his basket behind him and carried a heavy cudgel in his hand. He sauntered quietly along, stopping often to stare at the goods in the stalls, and at nobles who rode past, following generally by two or three esquires. No one would doubt that he was a young countryman freshly arrived in Paris. He had sent a message to the Count by Jules Varroy that he would pass along the street in the disguise of a young peasant as the clock struck seven, and that if he saw no white hoods about he would look up at the casement, return a minute or two afterwards, and then try if the door was unfastened. If so, he'd come in, while if it were fastened he should consider that it was judged unsafe for him to enter. He caught sight of Katerina's face at the window as he glanced up. There was a patrol of the white hoods in sight, but it was far down the street and after going a few yards past the house he crossed the road, and as he returned he pushed at the door. It yielded at once, and with a glance round to see that no one was watching, he entered quickly and closed it behind him. "'Oh, the Madonna be thanked that you're safe, Katerina, now in her girl's dress, exclaimed as she seized his hand. "'Oh, Monsieur Guy, how I have suffered! It was not until two o'clock that my father returned and told us that you were safe. I should never have forgiven myself if harm had come to you for your noble effort to save me.' I heard their shouts as they ran in pursuit of you, and scarcely thought it possible that you could escape when there were so many of their patrols about in the street. I cried all night at the thought that you should have thrown away your life to try to save mine, 
for I knew well enough what would have happened had that evil butcher dragged me to his quarter. After my father had been out early and brought back the news that you leapt into the Seine, we had some little hope, for Dame Margaret declared that she knew that you could swim well. We had no one we could send out, for the old woman is too stupid, and my father now strictly forbids me to stir outside the door. So here we all sat worn with anxiety until my father returned from the booth with the news. He could not come back earlier, and he had no one to send, for the black man must keep outside amusing the people as long as my father is there. All this was poured out so rapidly that it was said by the time they reached the door upstairs. Dame Margaret silently held out her hands to Guy as he entered, and Agnes kissed him with sisterly affection, while Charlie danced round and round him with boisterous delight. "'I hardly know how much you were to me, and how much I depended upon you, Guy,' Dame Margaret said presently, "'until I feared that I had lost you. When, as I thought must be the case from what Katrina said, I believed you were killed, or a prisoner in the hands of those terrible people, it seemed to me that we were quite left alone.' although there still remained the four men. Neither Agnes nor I closed our eyes all night. Charlie soon cried himself to sleep. Katerina sat up with us till nigh morning, and we had hard work to console her in any way. So deep was her grief at the thought that it was owing to her that you had run this peril. All night we could hear the Count walking up and down in the room above. He pointed out the peril that might arise to us all if you had fallen into the hands of the butchers, but at the time we could not dwell on that though there were doubtless grounds for his fears. "'Great grounds, madam. That is what I most feared when I was flying from them, and I was resolved that I would not be taken alive, for had I not gained the bridge, I was determined to force them to kill me rather than be captured. It was fortunate, indeed, that I came along when I did, though, Katharina, for had I not heard what Simon said, I should have passed on without giving a thought to the matter. There are too many evil deeds done in Paris to risk one's life to rescue a prisoner from the hands of a patrol of the White Hoods. As for me, I did not realize it until it was all over, Katerina said. I felt too frightened even to think clearly. It was not until the shouts of your pursuers had died away that I could realize what you had saved me from, and the thought made me so faint and weak that I was forced to sit down on a doorstep for a time before I could make my way home. As to my father, he turned as pale as death when I came in and told him what had happened. Shortly afterwards, the Count, who had been engaged with a person of consequence, came down. He thanked Guy in the warmest terms for the service he had rendered his daughter. "'Never was a woman in greater peril,' the Count said. "'And assuredly, St. Anthony, my patron saint, must have sent you to her rescue. She is all that I have left now, and it is chiefly for her sake that I have continued to amass money.' though I say not that my own fancy for meddling in such intrigues may not take some part in the matter. After this I am resolved of one thing, namely that she shall take no further part in the business. For the last year I have often told myself that the time had come when I must find another to act as my messenger and agent. It was difficult, however, to find one I could absolutely trust, and I have put the matter off. I shall do so no longer, and, in and indeed there is now the less occasion for it, since as I have just learned, fresh negotiations have been opened for peace. That it will be a lasting one, I have no hope. But the Orleanists are advancing in such force that Burgundy may well feel that the issue of a battle at present may go against him. But even though it lasts but a short time, there will come so many of the Orleanist nobles here, with doubtless strong retinues, that Paris will be overawed, and we shall have an end of these riots here. I shall, therefore, have no need to trouble as to what is going on at the markets. As to other matters, I can keep myself well informed. 
I have done services to knights and nobles of one party as well as the other, and shall be able to learn what is being done in both camps. The important point at present is Lady Margaret, that there is likely to be a truce, at any rate for a time. As soon as this is made, and the Duke of Aquitaine has gained power to act, you may be sure that the leaders of the White Hoods will be punished, and there will be no more closing of gates and examination of those who pass in and out. Therefore, madam, you will then be able to do what is now well-nigh impossible, namely, quit the town. At present the orders are more stringent than ever. None are allowed to leave, save with orders signed by Jean de Troyes, who calls himself Keeper of the Palace. Caboche, or other leaders, and even peasants who come in with market goods, must henceforth produce papers signed by the syndics of their villages, saying that they are the inhabitants of his commune, and therefore quiet and peaceable men going about their business of supplying the city with meat or vegetables, as the case may be. These papers must also be shown on going out again. Until a change takes place, then, there is no hope of your making your way out through the gates with your children. But as soon as the truce is concluded and the Orleanists come in, you will be able to pass out without trouble. It was not, indeed, for another month that the truce was settled, although the terms were virtually agreed upon at Pontois, where the Dukes of Berry and Burgundy met the Dukes of Orleans and Bourbon and other Orleanist nobles, and the conditions were considered at a council to which the delegates of the University and the Municipality of Paris were admitted. The conduct of the insurgents of Paris was now repudiated by the Duke of Burgundy, and the severest censure passed upon them in the conditions of the treaty. The greatest alarm was excited in the market quarter, and this was increased when, immediately afterwards, the Dukes of Bar and Bavaria were liberated. On the 12th of August and on the 4th of September, the rest of the prisoners still left alive were also set free. The bells of the churches rang a joyful peal. The Jacqueville, Jean de Troyes, Caboche, and many of the leaders of the butchers at once fled from Paris. Most of the knights who had been agents for the insurgents in the mock trials also left Paris, and shortly afterwards the Duke himself, finding how strongly the tide is set against him, and fearing that he himself might shortly be seized and thrown into prison, went out from Paris under the pretense of hunting, and fled. During this time Guy had remained with the four men-at-arms. As soon as the power of the butchers diminished, and the guards were removed from the gates, and all who pleased could enter or leave, Dame Margaret prepared for flight. Along with the Burgundian knights and nobles who returned after the truce was proclaimed came Count Charles d'Estournel, and several of those who had fled with him. Guy met the former riding through the street on the day after his return to Paris. Not caring to accost him there, he followed him and saw him dismount at his former lodging. As soon as he had entered, Guy went up to the door. "'What do you want?' one of the Count's violets said. "'I want to see your master, fellow,' Guy said sharply, "'and I'll pull your ears for your insolence if you cost me in that style.' The valet stared at him open-mouthed, then, thinking that this peasant might be deputed by the terrible butchers to see his lord, he inquired in a changed tone what message he should give to the Count. "'Say to him that the man of the street fray wants to see him.' A minute later the young Count himself ran downstairs and warmly embraced Guy to the astonishment of the valet. "'My dear friend,' he exclaimed, "'I am indeed delighted to see you twice have you saved my life, "'for assuredly had we not got through the Port Saint-Denis that day, "'not one of us would ever have left Paris alive, "'and we are all under the deepest obligation to you. 
but even after our skirmish at the gate we scarcely realized the danger that we had escaped, for we believed that even had the Parisians been insolent enough to demand our arrest for stopping them when engaged in attacking the houses of peaceable citizens, the Duke would treat their demand with the scorn that it deserved. However, when next day we heard that some of the officers of his household had headed them when they forced their way into the Duke of Aquitaine's hotel, and carried off the Duke of Bar and others from before his eyes, and that the Duke in all things assisted them, we knew that he would not have hesitated to deliver us up to the villains. But we held a council as to what we should do. We could not affirm that he had failed as our lord in giving us protection, for he had not done so, seeing that we had taken the matter into our own hands. Had he actually consented to hand us over to the Parisians, we should have issued a declaration laying the matter before all the great vassals of Burgundy, and denouncing him as a false lord. There are many who would have been very glad to have taken up the matter, for his truckling to these knaves has greatly displeased all save the men who are mere creatures of his. However, as we had no proof that he was willing to surrender us to the fury of the mob of Paris, we could really do nothing, and the crafty fox called upon my father the next day and expressed his satisfaction that we had all ridden away, though at the same time saying that there was no reason whatever for our having done so, as he should of course have refused to give any satisfaction to the mob of Paris and he caused several letters to the same effect to be sent to my friends who escaped with me. My father was very short with him, and told him that, as it seemed, the Parisians were the masters of the city, and that he had no power to restrain them, however monstrous their doings. He thought that we had all acted very wisely in going. He himself left Paris the next day, and several other nobles, relations or friends to some of his, took the earliest opportunity also of leaving for their estates, now that the power of the butchers has been broken, and that their leaders have fled, I came back again chiefly to find out what had become of you, and whether you and your charges have passed through these evil times unharmed. We have all been in hiding, and save for an adventure or two, have passed the time quietly. Now that the gates are open, we are going to make our escape, for you see everything points to the probability that the Orleanists will very shortly be supreme here, and after the defeat Sir Eustace gave Sir Clugnet de Brabant, they might be glad still to retain Our Lady as hostage, though methinks they would treat her more honorably than the Duke of Burgundy has done. Yes, possibly they might, but I would not count upon it, for indeed, wherever they have taken a town, they have treated those who fell into their hands most barbarously. Tis true that they have some excuse for it in the treatment of so many knights and ladies here. Indeed, it seems to me that France has been seized with madness, and that heaven's vengeance will fall upon her for the evil things that are being done. And now, can we aid you in any way? The Duke was extremely civil when I saw him on my arrival here yesterday. He said that I and my friends were wrong in not having trusted in him to protect us from the demands of the butchers. I told him frankly that, as he had in other matters been so overborne by them, and had been unable to save noble knights and ladies from being murdered by them under the pretense of a trial that all men knew was a mockery, it was just as well that we had taken the matter into our own hands without adding it to his other burdens and that I and my friends felt that we had no reason to regret the step we had taken, and we knew that our feelings were shared by many other nobles and knights in Burgundy. He looked darkly at me, but at the present pass he did not care to say anything that would give offence, not only to me, but to my friends, who with their connections are too powerful to be alienated at a time when he may need every lance. I could not, however, well ask from him a free conduct for your people without naming them, but I might get such a pass from his Chancellor, and if your former host, Maitre Laveux, be still alive, he might doubtless get you one from the municipality. 
as an additional protection i myself shall certainly ride with you it is for that that i have returned to paris i shall simply say to the chancellor that i am riding to arras on my own business and that though in most places i should be known to burgundians yet that it would be as well that i should have a pass lest i be met by any rude body of citizens or others who might not know me and i shall request him to make it out for me personally and for all persons travelling in my train so that as far as flanders at any rate there should be no difficulty i only propose that you should also get a document from the city in case of anything befalling us on the way i see not indeed what can befall us but it is always well in such times as these when such strange things occur to provide for all emergencies i may tell you that louis de latre and reginald poupart have arrived with me in paris bent on the same errand and anxious like myself to testify their gratitude to you so that we shall be a strong body and could if necessary ride through france without any pass at all since one or another of us is sure to find a friend in every town which we may traverse truly i am thankful indeed to you and to your friends count i own that it has been a sore trouble to me as to how we should be able however we might disguise ourselves to travel through the country in these disturbed times without papers of any kind when bodies of armed men are moving to and fro in all directions and travellers whoever they may be are questioned at every place on the road where they stop do not speak of thanks guy i twice owe you my life and assuredly tis little enough to furnish you in return with an escort to artois now tell me all that you have done since we left guy gave a short account of all that had happened it has been fortunate for us both count charles said when he had finished that this astrologer should have made your acquaintance it was his warning that enabled you to save us as well as your lady i have heard several times of him as one who had wondrous powers of reading the stars but now i see that it is not only the stars that assist him i can assure you that he himself believes thoroughly in the stars count he says that by them he can read the danger that is threatening any person whose horoscope he has cast i had not heard much of such things in england but i cannot doubt that he has great skill in them to my knowledge he has saved several lives thereby he certainly saved ours guy and should he like to join our party and ride with us he will be heartily welcomed i will return at once guy said and give my lady the good news i will not ask you to go with me now for if the count for he is really a nobleman though an exile decides to stay here he would not care to attract the attention of his neighbors by the coming of a noble to his house in daylight. Though I cannot, without his permission, take you there, I will return here this evening at eight o'clock, if you will be at home at that hour. I will be here, and de Lactre and Poupard will be here to meet you. I will go now direct to the Chancellor and obtain the pass both in their names and mine. Then we shall be ready to start whenever your lady is prepared. We have all brought some spare horses, so that you will have no trouble on that score. Your men-at-arms will, of course, ride with ours. We have brought eight horses, knowing the number of your company. If your Italian and his daughter go with us, Lady Agnes and Charles can ride behind some of us. Dame Margaret, Agnes, and Charlie were delighted indeed when they heard from Guy of his meeting with the young Count d'Estournel, and of the latter's offer to escort them to Artois. The saints be praised, his lady said. I have spoken little about it, Guy, but I have dreaded this journey far more than any of the dangers here. In time so disturbed, I have perceived that we should run innumerable risks, and eager as I am to return to my lord, I have doubted whether with Agnes with me I should be right in adventuring on such a journey. Now there can be no risk in it, save only that of falling in with any of the bands of robbers who, as they say, infest the country, 
and even these would scarce venture to attack so strong a party. We shall be ready to start to-morrow, if Count d'Estarnel is prepared to go so soon. We will be veiled as we ride out. It is most unlikely that any one will recognize us, but tis as well for his sake that there should be no risk whatever of this being known. The Count is out, and will not return until six. Therefore it will be best that you should go at once and warn the others that we start to-morrow. The pleasure of Long Tom and his companions at the news was scarcely less than that had been of Dame Margaret, and they started at once to recover their steel caps and armor from the place where they had been hidden, saying that it would take them all night to clean them up and make them fit for service. Then Guy went in to Maître Le Pelletier and saw the silversmith, who was also sincerely glad at the news he gave them. I was but yesterday arranging for a house where I could open my shop again until my own was rebuilt, said the silversmith for there is an end now of all fear of disturbances, at any rate for the present, and I was heartily greeted by many old friends who thought that I was dead. I will go down with Le Pelletier this afternoon to the offices of the municipality and ask for a pass from Madame. Up, Madame, what shall I call her? Eh? Call her Picard. It matters not what surname she takes. Madame Picard, her daughter and son, and her cousin, Jean Bouvray of Paris, to journey to Saint-Omar does not seem to me that the pass is likely to be of any use to you. At the same time, it's as well to be fortified with it. Now that the tyranny of the market-men is over, they will be glad to give us the pass without question. On the Italian's return that afternoon, Dame Margaret herself told him of the offer that Count d'Estartnel had made. The Count sat silent for a minute or two, and then said, I will talk it over with Caterina, but at present it does not seem to me that I can accept it. I am a restless spirit, and there is a fascination in this work, but I will see you presently. An hour later he came down with Caterina. We have agreed to stay, Lady Margaret, he said gravely. I cannot bring myself to go. It is true that I might continue my work in London, but as a stranger it would be long before I found clients, while here my reputation is established. Two of the knights I enabled to escape have already returned. One called upon me last night and was full of gratitude, declaring, and rightly, that he should have been, like so many of his friends, murdered in prison had I not warned him. I have eight requests already for interviews from friends of these knights, and as, for a time at any rate, their faction is likely to be triumphant here, I shall have my hands full of business. This is a pleasant life. I love the exercise of my art, to watch how the predictions of the stars come true, to fit things together, and to take my share, though an unseen one, in the politics and events of the day. I have even received an intimation that the Queen herself is anxious to consult the stars, and it may be that I shall become a great power here. I would fain that my daughter should go under your protection, though I own that I should miss her sorely. However, she refuses to leave me, and against my better judgment my heart has pleaded for her, and I have decided that she shall remain. She will, however, take no further part in my business, but will be solely my companion and solace. I trust that with such protection as I shall now receive, there is no chance of even the church meddling with me. But should I see danger approaching, I will send or bring her to you at once. I shall be glad to see her whenever she comes, and shall receive her as a daughter. We owe our lives to your shelter and kindness, and we already love her. The shelter and the kindness have already been far more than repaid by the inestimable service your esquire rendered us, the Italian said. I have since blamed myself bitterly that I neglected to consult the stars concerning her. I have since done so, and found that a most terrible danger threatened her on that day, and, had I known it, I would have kept her indoors, and would on no account have permitted her to go out. 
However, I shall not be so careless of her safety in the future. I see that, at any rate for some time, her future is unclouded. She herself will bitterly regret your absence, and has already been weeping sorely at the thought of your leaving. Save myself, she has never had a friend, poor child, and you and your daughter have become very dear to her. Dame Margaret had no preparations to make, for in their flight from the silversmiths each had carried a bundle of clothes. Guy brought Count d'Estournel round in the evening, and the arrangements were then completed. It was thought better that they should not mount at the house, as this would be certain to attract considerable observation and remark, but that Count Charles should come round at seven in the morning and escort them to his lodging. There the horses would be in readiness, and they would mount and ride off. Guy then went round to the Rue des Fosses, and warned the men of the hour at which they were to assemble at the Count's. He found them all hard at work burnishing up their armor. "'We shall make but a poor show, Master Guy, do what we will,' Tom said, "'and I doubt whether this gear will ever recover its brightness so deeply as the rust eaten into it. Still we can pass muster on a journey, and the swords have suffered but little, having been safe in their scabbards. I never thought that I should be so pleased to put on a steel cap again, and I only wish I had my bow slung across my shoulder.' It will be something for you to look forward to, Tom, and I doubt not that you will find among the spare ones at Villeroy one as good as your own, and that with practice you will soon be able to shoot us truly with it. Tom shook his head doubtfully. I hope so, but I doubt whether I shall be suited again till I get home, and Master John Le Bowyer makes one specially suitable for me, and six inches longer than ordinary. Still I doubt not that if it be needed I shall be able to make shift with one of those at Villeroy. The evening before the departure of Dame Margaret and her children, Maitre Leroux and his wife, with a man bearing a large parcel, had called upon Dame Margaret at the house of the astrologer, whose address Guy had given the provost that day. "'We could not let you leave, Lady Margaret,' the matron's wife said, "'without coming to wish you Godspeed. Our troubles like yours are over for the present, and I trust that the butchers will never become masters of Paris again, whatever may happen.' Maître Le Pelletier, said the silversmith, is going to organize the whole of his craft, the workmen and apprentices, into an armed body, and the master of the smiths will do the same. I shall endeavor to prevail upon all the traders of my own guild and others to raise such a body among their servitors, and while we have no wish whatever to interfere in the political affairs of state, we shall at least see that the market people of Paris shall not become our masters again. Master Aylmer, I have brought hither for you a slight token of my regard and gratitude for the manner in which you saved not only our property, but our lives. Within this package are two suits of armor and arms. One is a serviceable one, suitable to your present condition of an esquire. The other is a knightly suit, which I hope you will wear in remembrance of us as soon as you obtain that honor, which I cannot but feel assured will not be far distant. Had you been obliged to leave Paris in disguise, I should have made an endeavour to send them to you in England by way of Flanders, but as you will issue out in good company, and without examination or question asked, you can wear the one suit, and have the other carried for you. Guy thanked the silversmith most heartily, for, having lost his armour at the burning of the house, he had felt some uneasiness at the thought of the figure that he would cut riding in the train of the three Burgundian knights. But at the same time, his own purse had been exhausted in the purchase of the disguises for himself and the men-at-arms, and that of his mistress greatly reduced by the expenses of the keep of the men, and he had determined not to draw upon her resources for the purchase of armor. His thanks were repeated when, on the package being opened, the beauty of the knightly armor was seen. It was indeed a suit of which any knight would be proud. It was less ornate in its inlaying and chasing than some of the suits worn by nobles, 
but it was of the finest steel and best make, with every part and accessory complete, and of the highest workmanship and finish. "'It is a princely gift, sir,' Guy said as he examined it, "'altogether beyond my poor deserts.' "'That is not what I think, Master Aylmer. You have shown all through this business a coolness and courage altogether beyond your years, and which would have done honour to an experienced knight. My store of silverware that was saved by your exertions, to say nothing of our lives, was worth very many times the value of this armour, and I am sure that your lady will agree with me that this gift of ours has been well and honourably earned. "'I do indeed, Maitre Leroux, Dame Margaret said indeed, and assure you that I am as pleased as Guy himself at the noble gift you have made him. I myself have said but little to him as to the service that he has rendered here, leaving that until we reach our castle in safety, when Sir Eustace, on hearing from me the story of our doings, will better speak in both our names than I can do. In the morning Dame Margaret and her children set out for the lodging of D'Estournel, escorted by the Count and Guy, followed by a porter carrying the latter's second suit of armour and the valises of Dame Margaret. Guy himself had charge of a casket which the Count de Montepone had that morning handed to Dame Margaret. "'These are gems of value,' the Count said. "'In the course of my business I more often receive gifts of jewels than of money. The latter, as I receive it, I hand it to a firm, here having dealings with a banker of Bruges, who holds it at my disposal. The gems I have hitherto kept, but as it is possible that we may, when we leave Paris, have to travel in disguise, I would fain that they were safely bestowed. I pray you, therefore, to take them with you to your castle in England, and to hold them for us until we come.' Dame Margaret willingly took charge of the casket, which was of steel, strongly bound, and some nine inches square. "'Its weight is not so great as you would think by its appearance,' the Italian said, "'for it is of the finest steel, and the gems have been taken from their settings. It will therefore, I hope, be no great inconvenience to you.' At parting, Caterina, who was greatly affected, had given Guy a small box. "'Do not open it until you reach Villeroy,' she said. "'It's a little remembrance of the girl you saved from deadly peril, and who will never forget what she owes to you.' On reaching the Count's lodgings, they found the other two knights in readiness. Dame Margaret's four men-at-arms were holding the horses. "'I'm glad to see you all again,' she said, as they came up. "'This is a far better ending than our fortunes seem likely to have had at one time.' and I thank you all for your faithful service. "'I'm only sorry, my lady, that we have had no opportunity of doing aught since we were cooped up,' Tom replied. "'Nothing would have pleased us better than to have had the chance again of striking a stout blow in your defence.' "'We may as well mount at once, if it's your pleasure, Dame Margaret,' Count d'Estournel said, "'for the other men-at-arms are waiting for us outside the gates.' The packages were at once fastened on the two pack-horses that were to accompany them, all then mounted. The three knights with Dame Margaret rode first, then Guy rode with Agnes by his side, and the four men-at-arms came next, Charlie riding before Jules Varroy, who was the lightest of the men-at-arms, while two of the Count's servants brought up the rear, leading the sumpter horses. End of chapter 16 Recording by Mike Harris